Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses, uh, we're going to begin in verse 19 like we have over the last three weeks, but this time we're going to go through the end of the chapter, so the, through verse 34, okay? So let's begin in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he, he, will, either, um, he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? But the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. All right, a year and a half ago, we launched our capital campaign called Rooted in Growing. At that time, we, we didn't own a building. Um, we didn't have a building fund. We were just a three-year-old church with a big dream. And we felt like God was telling us that it is time to get ready, that, that something big is coming and, and that we as a people needed to start preparing for that. Uh, to launch that, that uh, capital campaign, I preached a sermon series called Get Greedy. And um, obviously, it was ironically named because what we were doing is taking a look at how when we get greedy... Uh, for the things that give life, God frees us from greed for the things that rob it, right? When we get greedy for grace, we are freed from greed for things, and uh, ultimately we are empowered for generous living. Now we're halfway through, uh, at this point in time, halfway through our capital campaign. We're a year and a half in, and, and uh, we now own a building, right? It's just down the street. We've got the keys. Um, it just needs to be renovated. We need to get in there and, and completely renovate the interior for our use, and so that means that we are, once again, at a historic crossroads for our young church, right? And that means we need to make some decisions. We're, we're hoping to get into the building by January. Like, like, we're looking at a little window here. The challenge, though, is, is obviously uh, money. We need to have enough money to make the renovations we need to make. So we need to know where we stand financially. Now, here's the thing. We're not in crisis mode, right? We're, we're not in this horrible shape. We're actually in a very good position, and, and um, we feel like we can actually start moving on the renovation now. But what I would love to see us do, if possible, is get all the renovation done in one clean sweep so that we can get in there and maximize the use of that building um, for our good and for God's glory and for ministry into our community. And, uh, and that means that um, uh, we have a challenge in front of us, right? We need to, we need to once again talk a little bit about money. So we're going to be making some important decisions, and in order for us to make those decisions, we need to know where we stand financially. And so we will be taking uh, a special offering next Sunday, and uh, we're calling it Commitment Sunday, because I'm actually going to be asking you to do one of three things. If you are a member or a regular attender, I'm going to ask you to do one of three things. If you were here at the launch of our original capital campaign, and you made a pledge, um, we're just going to ask that, that uh, you let us know that you are planning on fulfilling that pledge, Right? Um, that, that you're like, yeah, that's going to happen. And, and I've talked to some folks. Some, some folks have been like, Steve, would it help if we paid off that pledge early, if we just paid it in one lump sum now? And I'm like, absolutely. Absolutely. The more liquid asset we have right now, the more cash we have on hand, the better we can take advantage of the opportunity in front of us. And so we've had some people do that. I've had some other people come to me and say, Steve, I've gotten a little bit behind on my pledge, and, and, um, uh, but I'm, I'm going to pray, and I'm, I'm really going to trust that God's going to give me the ability to catch up. I'm going to 
pinch and sacrifice and make some things to make that happen. And, and my response is always the same, thank you. And, uh, and I hope that, that God stretches your faith in, in beautiful ways as you prove him faithful, right? Um, and, and so we're going to ask that you commit, that you basically say, yeah, we're going to fulfill that pledge. And if you need to adjust your pledge, if things have happened in your life or circumstances have changed, you need to reduce your pledge, that's fine. Let us know. Because again, the more accurate our numbers, um, the better off we're going to be. The second response is going to be, if the Lord has prospered you in the last year and a half, uh, you made a pledge and you've been giving to that pledge, but you're looking now and you're saying, you know what? The Lord's leading me to give more. God has blessed me and prospered me in the last year and a half and I, I can give more. Then, then let us know, right? Let us know next Sunday. The third is if you've come in the last year and a half and you weren't here for the original launch of the capital campaign, I want to invite you in for the last year and a half. Okay, we're not going to uh, launch a whole three-year campaign. We're just going to invite you into the final year and a half for you to participate with us to be part of what God is calling us to sacrifice for and to build together. Um, so I want to thank all of you who have given and all of you who have been involved. Um, we're in very good shape because of your faithfulness and because God's movement in us to, to make us a generous people. Uh, we're just praying and asking God, all right, Lord, we've, we've got this opportunity in front of us. Let's see. Let's see what God's going to do, right? So let's pray about it and figure out. And that's really what I'm calling um, all of us to do for the last three weeks is really just pray and find out how God wants us to be involved right? Lord, what do you want me to do? How should I be involved? Okay. Uh, we're also going to be taking a special offering next week. We normally do that at the end of the year in December. Uh, it's a mission offering where we use it to advance the mission of the church um, and, and to go toward church planting. And, and this year that's going to go again toward our ability to, to get rooted in this community so we can grow in ministry to this community, right? And so it's going to be going toward the renovation of the, of the building, uh, but we're going to be bumping it up. We're going to take it next week. Okay. That doesn't mean you can't give after that. Many of you can't give until the end of the year. So we're not saying you can't give to that special offering later. We're just trying to get as much of that up front as we can. So we know where we stand right now, right? Cause we have to make some critical decisions about, um, the extent of our renovation and, and what we're going to be doing. And so that's going to be next week. Now this isn't above and beyond offering. We're going to take our regular offering during the service. We'll take our special offering at the end. Uh, our regular offering goes to fund our normal budgetary needs. And, and of course we, um, we need our members and regular attenders to continue to, to give faithfully to those needs. Um, but the special offering will be taken at the end of the service. So, so I just want you to be in the know. That's what's going on. That's what we've been asking you to pray about. I've, I've put these announcements out in previous weeks, uh, but that will be happening next week. So please, please, please be praying with us. I mean, that's really, we're asking God to, to meet our need. Right? We're asking God to equip us to move forward and take full advantage of the opportunity that's in front of us. And, um, and, and, and so just be praying that God will do that and that God will show you um, and each one of us how he wants us to be involved in that. Now, the byproduct of this has been the opportunity, once again, for me to preach about stewardship, right? To preach about money. Um, this is one of the key areas that scripture talks about um, because you can't talk about money without talking about your heart. You can't. Because what you do with your money is not a financial issue, it's not a budgetary issue, it's not an Excel spreadsheet issue, it is a heart issue. Because there are few things tied more closely than the use of your money and the expression of your heart. In the last three weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' words here in Matthew 6, and been unpacking some of the challenging truths that Jesus has been telling us about us. <laughs> right? And I know for some of you, this has been hard. Um, I know it's, it's, uh, it's difficult when, when um, sometimes Jesus holds up a mirror and uh, it's not the, uh, the distorted mirror we normally like to look at, the one that shows us the version of ourselves we like to see, uh, but it's an accurate mirror that actually shows us our heart. And so this is what we've seen over the last three weeks. Three weeks ago, we saw that, that Jesus was saying that, that we are prone um, to bury our treasure or bury our heart in the wrong treasure right? He said, don't treasure your earthly treasures where, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Treasure your heavenly treasure, right? We are prone to bury our hearts in the wrong treasure. We're prone to look at the things that we have and the things that our, our money can buy uh, to meet our deepest needs. We bury our heart in the wrong place. We start looking to our money and our wealth and our influence and our success and, and, and all the accoutrements that come with that. And we look at those things and we say to those things, Make me secure, make me successful, make me loved, give me pleasure, distract me, right? We look to those things to meet deep heart needs. And that's a foolish thing because the enemy breaks in and steals our hope. 
The enemy breaks in and, and steals our security. The enemy breaks in and, and, and wreaks havoc on our heart when we bury our heart in the wrong place, right? Last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that, that we are prone to see life in the wrong way. Jesus said, when you see life through greed instead of through grace, you, you practically become blind. It closes off the light. Because instead of seeing the gracious outpouring of God's goodness in your life, all you see is your need and your want and, and, and where things are, not what you have, but what you, you think you need to be happy. You fill your vision with those things and it creates a black hole of need in your life. It robs you of joy and it fills you with anxiety. We're actually going to unpack that a little bit more in a moment. Last week, Jesus, we looked at his words um, where he said, basically, we are prone to serve the wrong master. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. What he was saying there is, is you can't worship two gods. You can't worship money and look to money to be your God and worship God and look to God to be God. You, you will look to one and despise the other or you will despise the one and, and, and cling to the other. And, and uh, we are prone to cling to the wrong master. We're prone to look to money and, and security and the things that we own um, to ultimately do for us what only God can do to be for us what only God can be. See, in the end, the reason Jesus is exposing our hearts is not to condemn us, but to invite us into something better. And today, we're going to see that as we look at a command um, that honestly looks like a bit of a nonsensical command, but, but it makes sense when we see it as an invitation instead of um, a condemnation, right? Verse 25, take a look. We're going to be referring, keep your Bibles open because we'll keep referring to the passage. Verse 25, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. How are you guys doing with that one? You like that one? Does that sit well with you? Do not be anxious. Um, most of us simply can't imagine life without anxiety. I mean, for real. Like, we're not talking Hallmark talk here, right? We love to put Jesus' words on Hallmark cards where we can think of them as nice sentimental thoughts, but things that aren't really supposed to be lived out in reality. When we apply this to reality, right, um, this gets really difficult because here's the thing. Um, as a culture, we love stress. We love it. We build our lives. We fill it with activity. We, we, we are constantly distracted. We, we, we overload ourselves. We love stress. We love anxiety. Taylor Clark wrote an article um, analyzing stress in America in Slate. And, uh, and I want to read you a quote. Now, it's a little bit long, but it, it ends with a provocative question. That's where I want to go with it. Um, so I'm going to put the, uh, the quote on the screen. You can read along. Um, those of you on my left, you're not going to miss out. Just listen, okay? You're not going to be able to read along, but, but I will read the whole thing, all right? Uh, this is the quote. Over the last several decades, both through good economic times and bad, the United States has transformed into the planet's undisputed worry champion. Around the turn of the millennium, anxiety flew past depression as the most prominent mental health issue in America, and it's never looked back. And this anxious strain hits us well before we reach college. As psychologist Robert Leahy points out, the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. This natural surge in nerves is somewhat baffling because we're actually safer from true danger than we've ever been. A century ago, psychologist William James wrote that mod modernity, I always trip over that word, modernity, has insulated us so well from grave threats like grizzly bear attacks that in civilized life, it has at last become possible for large numbers of people to pass from the cradle to the grave without ever having had a pang of genuine fear. Yet James might have been surprised to learn that even as our streets become safer and our cars more crash-proof and our food and drugs better regulated, we still keep finding ways to become more and more tense. And don't assume that this is a problem that affects all nations equally. According to a 2002 World Mental Health Survey, people in developing world countries, such as Nigeria, are up to five times less likely to show clinically significant anxiety levels than Americans despite having more basic need necessities to worry about. What's more, 
When these less anxious developing world citizens immigrate to the United States, they tend to just get as anxious as Americans. Something about our peculiar way of life then is making us less calm and composed. So what's behind our ballooning issue with anxiety and stress? What's behind our ballooning issue with anxiety and stress? That is the million-dollar question, and I'm not exaggerating, right? There's a whole industry that has been born in, in helping people deal with stress, right? How to reduce stress, how to manage stress, how to harness stress to become more productive, right? Look on Amazon for uh, resources to help you deal with anxiety, and you're going to find hundreds of books, right? Probably thousands. Uh, there, are, there are programs and, and seminars and, and all this stuff, all this stuff. You guys, why are we so stressed out? Why is there so much anxiety? Because if we can put our thumb on that pulse, we might be able to fix it, or at least know how to address it, right? So Taylor, the author of this article, um, at the end of the article, points to several factors, in fact, three, that, that we, he would argue that, that ultimately... Um, lead to, to this increase in stress. Things like lack of community. We turn more toward virtual community instead of actual human contact. The overflow of information, that we have more information to process today than any group of people has ever had to process before in the past. And that, uh, especially in America, we have grown to a place where we have an incredibly small tolerance for discomfort that we see any invasive or any form of discomfort as invasive into our lives. We have the right to a, a, a discomfort-free life. And so any form of discomfort becomes an extreme form of suffering for us. And I wouldn't disagree with any of those points. I think they're all accurate, but here's the thing. I think they're all fruit. I don't think they're the root. I think those are expressions of a deeper problem. Um, and I think that problem, honestly, is unpacked right here. I think when Jesus is describing the problem of the human heart, he is describing the problem of the American culture. Because what is culture except the expression of our hearts? And there are few cultures, if any, that have ever had as much wealth and affluence as the American culture. So let's take a look. I want to remind you of one of the concepts we unpacked um, in, in previous messages because I think it's informative here and, and helpful. Uh, I call it a little napkin theology because it's the kind of thing you can sit down and just sketch out on a napkin. Um, not only does it help you remember it, but it helps you explain it. Um, those of you on the left, we, we gave you some handouts with these slides on them so that you can see them there. Um, so we unpacked this, first of all, what we call greed vision or greed way of looking at life. This is, by the way, the way we naturally look at life. We naturally approach life and see it through greed, which means that we see life as a field of limited resources, right? We, we see life as a competition. <clears throat> there are, there's only so much to go around and I've got to get mine, <clears throat> whatever it is, right? There's only so much to get around. So I need to fight for mine. And that means I need to hold tightly to what I have and fight for more. This natural impulse toward greed, scripturally, we're told it's born out of the fact that, that we are born separated from God. We were created by God in the image of God to live for the glory of God and the overflow of the goodness of God. And we're born separated from God because of our sin. And as a result, we don't live in the overflow of the goodness of God. And, and that leaves this gaping hole of need within us that we try to feed with everything but God. We try to feed it with, with, with our success. We try to feed it with our wealth. We try to feed it with earthly security. We try to feed it with earthly uh, approval and affirmation, right? We, we try to feed it. And what ends up happening is, is because we can't, we feel deeply vulnerable and afraid. We feel exposed and we try to protect that fear with more and more success, more and more money, more and more security, more and more approval. We try to just heap on more and more and more, right? And what ends up happening is that fear ends up mixing with our sinful pride. So it is a fear that results of our, from our vulnerability of, of being separated from God and exposed in our weakness. But that mixes with the sinful pride that basically says, I can fix this. I can do this. It's on me. 
I can provide. I can succeed. I can create security. It's on me to fix it. In other words, I can be like God. I can act like God and do what God does. What ends up happening is we see life filled with limited security and unlimited threats. And we pool our resources and our energy to, to, to build up our security and protect ourselves from threats. And this greed vision of life where we see life as this area of battle in which there are limited resources in which we need to get our own creates a cycle of self-sufficiency and self-trust. We look to ourselves, we trust ourselves. And the engine behind it is this driving sense of need. This driving lust. It is a magnetic pull toward the center. It's a magnetic pull on on what we have and a fearful um, protection of it as well as a lustful desire for more. Right? That's, That's the life of grasping. We're holding on to what we have and we want more to hold on to. Right? I can't let this go because I'm not secure enough and I need more to be secure. I can't let this go because I'm not successful enough and I need more to be successful. I can't let this go because I'm not comfortable enough. I don't have enough pleasure in my life. I don't have joy in my life. I need more. And that leads to a life of grumbling because what that does is it shifts our focus from what we have to what we don't. We focus instead of of, of the blessings that we have, it shifts us to the blessings that we want, that we don't have. And so it produces within us this heart of grumbling. A heart that grumbles is very simply a heart that is dissatisfied with what is. And it keeps talking about it. (laughs) It just goes on and on and on and on, talking about how unsatisfied you are. And if you could just have this, and if you could just be there, and if you could just get this, then... It's this grumbling, grumbling, grumbling of dissatisfaction with what is. You guys, this is the spin cycle of our lives. And when this spin cycle goes, instead of pushing us out, it pushes us into a black hole. And you know what is at the heart of that spin cycle? Anxiety. Fear. A lack of contentment. See, the more we go on this cycle, because the more you grasp, the more you grumble, the more you grumble, the greedier your vision becomes. The more greedy your vision becomes, the more you grasp and the more you grumble. And it pulls us in and in and in to a greater and greater experience of anxiety. The more we get, the more anxious we become. Because it simply increases our appetite for more because you can never get enough because it can't actually feed the appetite you're trying to feed. In fact, one of the greatest um, blessings slash curses that can happen to you is that you get everything you hoped you'd get. And there's nothing more to get. Because in that moment, you realize it doesn't feed the appetite you're trying to feed. It doesn't do for you what you were hoping it would do. And you're left with existential despair. When you have everything you thought you could get and you have nothing of what you thought it would give. Beautifully, God breaks into this cycle. God doesn't leave us here. This is the natural cycle of our heart. This is where we are born. This is our natural bent. But God, in his grace, breaks in. This whole thing happens because we're separated from God by our sin. Um, And God, instead of leaving us in our sin, loves us broke into our sin, offers us forgiveness and redemption, and then gives us grace. The whole thing is grace, right? God reaches out to us in grace. The God of sovereignty and sufficiency and strength, instead of grasping, gives. The God who who was offended by our sin, instead of standing apart from us, watching us simply take the full brunt of the consequence of our sin, instead so fully identified with us that he took our sin. Right? He lived the life we should have lived. He became one of us. And he did it right. And then he died the death we deserve to die. He became our substitute in death, bearing for us the consequence of our sin in our place. 
fully drinking that cup to the point of death. And then he rose again. Completely wiping the slate clean and completely removing our guilt, completely removing our shame and giving us a new record that's marked not by our behavior, but by his, not by our achievement, but by his, not by our lack of glory, but his beautiful glory. That's grace. God freely gives in love. And in so doing, he solves our greatest problem. He pays our greatest debt. And he loves us at our most unlovable. I didn't wait until we made ourselves better. You guys, when we talk about church, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about what God is doing, it's not about making you more moral or changing your behavior, at least not primarily. It's about changing your heart. It's about reintroducing you to the love of God. The gospel, the good news is not, hey, you can fix yourself. The gospel is God did what you couldn't do so you could be fixed, forgiven, washed, cleansed, and given a new future. A future not limited by your past, but unlimited because it is marked by his righteousness, not your lack of it. You guys, when we sit in this, when we really get that we have a God who is not only holy and perfect and beautiful, but a God of humble love, a God who fully identified with us in our rebellion to the point of taking that rebellion on himself and dying in our place, when we get that, something beautiful happens in our hearts, and it's called the birth of gratitude. And gratitude is the combination of thankfulness and contentment, right? Thankfulness is praise that says, what you've given me is worthy of my adoration. It's a warmth. It's a, it's a, it's a generation of, of worthiness. You're saying, man, I've received this and it, it warms me and you want to give some of the goodness back. That's what thankfulness is. It's like, man, I've been warmed and blessed. I want to share that blessing with you. Even if it's, even if it's just me saying you are worth me thanking. But that's also combined with a profound contentment. Why? Because when you taste the love of God, what you find is it actually meets your deepest heart desires in ways things never could. When you taste the profound love of God, it fills you. And it quiets the lust and the hunger of greed. Because that's really your heart grumbling for the fact that it has a need that can't be met and all the things you're trying to feed it. We were designed for the outpouring of infinite love. And only infinite love can meet the deepest needs of our heart. And that love is, that need for love is met in our relationship with God through Christ. So it wakes our hearts up to gratitude. And when it does, it then moves us to generosity, right? When, when, whenever we read about God's love in the New Testament, it's almost always followed up by a phrase that says, and he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave, right? That, that's not an example that we're supposed to follow. That's, a, that's an exploration of a true principle, that those that are moved most deeply by love move most freely in generosity. They, they cling to their things less tightly because their appetites are so fully fed on what truly feeds. God is free in his generosity because he is most full of the experience of love. And he invites us into the overflow of that love, the pouring out of that love, so that we also can become free in the movement of generosity. See, here's the thing. We receive grace from God, but we were never given grace to simply hold it and keep it to ourselves. In the same way God of grace gives grace, we were designed to give grace as well. The power of grace is set loose in our lives as it simply transitions from God to others. God gives freely, so we will give freely. And we discover the blessings of grace as we give in a greater and greater degree, having been moved by grace in the power of grace. You know what is at the center of this circle? Grace leading to gratitude, which leads to generosity. And as you move out in grace to others, it gives you a deeper experience of grace. And as you have a deeper experience of grace, it increases your gratitude and, and, and that moves you into a deeper experience. of. You know what's at the center of that circle? Joy. joy, the opposite of anxiety. Not fear, not grasping, not anxiety, but the fullness and the contentment of joy. Unlike the black hole of the cycle of greed, which pulls us into a self-focused view of life that fills us with anxiety, this pushes us out 
following a God who's on the move of generosity and it fills our vision with his glory and it fills our vision with the beauty of the fact that we can't outgive God. No matter how generous we become with our lives, it helps us discover a deeper and more profound experience of the generosity of God. So let's come back to Jesus's command, right? Jesus said, do not be anxious. And if we take this as a command, it is, um, it's not just difficult, it's absurd. It's impossible. You ever tried just simply obey it as a command? You ever been anxious and then just told yourself, it's time to stop? Stop that. Yeah, how did that work for you? Right? Imagine that, that, that you, you know, I don't want you to think too deeply about this. I don't want to let anxiety loosen your heart right now. But from a distance, think about something that gives you anxiety, right? Maybe getting the kids ready in the morning before church or, or maybe having a thing do it at work and, and it's last minute and you know it's not high enough quality. Or, or maybe, maybe it's a project that is a group project and nobody else in the group showed up or, or whatever it is, right? And, and then your spouse walks up and says, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you stop being anxious? Does that help? Or maybe it's your mom giving you a call. Hey, how's your day? Oh man, I'm overwhelmed. I got all this. Hey, I got a great suggestion. Stop it. Yeah, your heart just goes, yeah. No. The command um, comes in and, and honestly, it's more like a drill sergeant than a comfort, right? It's like a drill sergeant coming in and it increases the pressure and it increases the anxiety. Let's just be honest, man. If this is a command we have to obey, we're helpless because it will only make it worse. That's why we have to see this not as a command, but as an invitation. And contextually, it absolutely is. In fact, take a look, all right? Take a look. Verse 25, there's a little key word that begins verse 25. It says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? All right, that little word, therefore, I had an instructor tell me one time that every time you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for, right? It's not just a filler word. It's not just there to take up space. It actually shows a causality that there is in fact a relationship between the previous ideas and the one presently given. And what that means is that there's a clear tie in this passage. Jesus is saying that the way you look at your money will play out in your heart. The way you look at your money and your wealth and things that you own will play out in your heart. You guys, listen to me. Anxiety doesn't come from the things you have or don't have in your life. Now listen to that because you don't believe me yet. Anxiety, whatever it is that's giving you anxiety, it's not the thing. Like, you know, man, I got a promotion coming up and I'm feeling all this pressure and I got to perform that. No, that thing's not giving you anxiety. Dude, I've got, I've got bills to pay. I have to pay the... No, that's not what's giving you anxiety. Dude, I, I, have, I get to the, the end of the bills and I have too much month left. Yeah, I, that's not what's giving you anxiety. Anxiety doesn't come from the needs in your life. And you can keep blaming your debt. You can keep blaming the cost of gas. And you can keep blaming performance. And you can, but here's the thing. That isn't what actually causes anxiety. Anxiety results from when we put our faith in the wrong thing to solve the problem. Anxiety is what we experience when we put our faith in the wrong thing to solve the problem. Take a look at verses 26 through 29, okay? Jesus illustrates this. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What is, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we should be like the birds? Completely irresponsible? right? Is that we're supposed to be a bird? Just kind of flutter through life. It doesn't really matter. You know, I'll just, wherever I land, that's good. Hey, I'm sleeping on your couch tonight because I don't have one, right? Not planning for the future, not setting aside an income, not, not thinking about retirement or paying your bills, right? Is that, is that what Jesus is endorsing? 
a radical hippie lifestyle of simply moving through life, becoming independent on others? No, it's not, okay? That contradicts all of Scripture, right? The Scripture praises hard work. Scripture praises planning to succeed. The Scripture praises diligent effort and, 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 and maximizing the opportunities and the talents that God has given us. So what is he saying? He's not saying act like the birds. He's saying trust like the birds. The birds can't provide for themselves. He's not praising their their behavior. He's praising their trust in an anthropomorphic kind of a way, right? He's saying kind of like people, be like that. They're not all stressed out about whether or not they're going to find a worm tomorrow. God's going to provide them a worm tomorrow. They're not stressed out about whether or not they're going to find the right building materials to build their dream nest. God will provide them the right materials. See, the issue is not acting like them. The issue is trusting like them. See, they don't worry. And God takes care of them. And you're more important than the birds. You were created in the image of God unique in all of creation, designed to reflect and experience the overflow of his glory. If God takes care of the birds, what Jesus is saying is, don't you think he's trustworthy with your life? See, the issue is not behaving like them, it's trusting like them. And then he compares the flowers of the field to Solomon, and I love that one. He's like, the flowers of the field, man, this, this field that is going to dry out and you're going to reap it and you're going to take it up and it's going to become, basically, you're going to bundle it together. And gonna, you're just going to burn it. But it's arrayed with more beauty and more glory than Solomon and all of his splendor. Solomon worked so hard to amass wealth and to amass glory and, to, to, and, and all of his effort fell short of what God does in that flower and in that field in a single day. See, Jesus is saying, not only is God trustworthy with your daily needs, he is trustworthy with your deepest desires. Your desire for glory, your desire for security, your desire for success and for achievement and for security and for joy and pleasure. God is trustworthy with your deepest desires can provide in a way you never could for yourself. Don't you see him as trustworthy? That's what Jesus is saying. He makes this clear in the next couple of verses, if you take a look at verses 30 through 32. But if God so clothes the, uh, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, and by that he means the unbelievers, those who are not um, in relationship with God through Christ, even they seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, And he he knows what you need, all of them. When he says, oh, you have little faith, he's pointing us to the heart of the problem. The problem isn't our lack of need. Our problem is our lack of faith. The problem isn't that you have too little money. The problem is not that you have too little success. The problem is not that you have too little recognition. The problem is not that you have too little approval. The problem is not whatever it is that you're looking to and you're saying that's just a little bit more of that, just a little bit more of that, just a little bit. That's not the problem. The problem is lack of faith. You trust too little in a God that is worthy of all trust. The God of grace who invites you to rest in his love, to be enriched by his beauty, to be clothed with his glory. You don't trust him. Now, don't be offended. We all have a hard time trusting God. Because naturally, we're wired for greed. We're wired to provide for ourselves. We're wired to build our own kingdoms. We're wired to provide our own security. We're wired to to live for our own glory. That's what we're wired for because we're born separate from God. We have to be retrained to trust in God by grace. We have to be invited by grace and transformed by grace so that we move into a greater and greater freedom of trust in the God who is worthy of that trust. See, Jesus is calling us to faith, the kind of faith that works its way out in our lives and sets us free in beautiful, 
ways. He's calling us to abandon trust in ourselves, trust in our own strength, trust in our own ability, trust in our solution, and instead trust in him. So here's the thing. I want you to catch this. When Jesus says, be like the birds, work hard, be diligent, maximize the opportunities in front of you, right? God wired you for productivity. God wired you to run hard and pursue good things. Do it to the glory of God, not to the glory of self. See, it isn't that this activity ceases. It's the motivation behind the activity that changes. See, our hope isn't in ourselves, it's in God. And, And so our motivation isn't to build our own little kingdoms, to build our security, to build our glory, to build our reputation. That's not our motivation anymore. Because God's the glorious one. We're not living for our kingdom. We're living for his. Our motivation now is the motivation of gratitude to the God who has poured out so much good in our lives. Our motivation is to glorify him with the gifts and the talents and abilities that he has entrusted to us for his glory and for our pleasure. It means we don't fill our vision with what we don't have. We don't fill our vision with what we think we need. We fill our vision with what we've been given. We don't fill our vision with what we think we need to finish our little kingdom. We fill our vision with the king of the new kingdom. The secret of contentment, you guys, isn't more stuff. The secret of contentment is not a little bit more money. The secret of contentment is not a little more success. The secret of contentment is not a little more freedom. The secret of contentment is not a little more affection or a little more approval or a little bit more of whatever you're looking for. The secret of contentment is a little bit more of him. Because your deepest heart desire is for the experience of the love of God. That hunger is deeper than your physical hunger, your appetite for glory or success or achievement or even security. And in feeding that appetite, all the other appetites are quieted and find their place. In verse uh, 33, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. How many things? Which, Which things are left for us to worry about? Which things are left for us to provide for ourselves? None of them. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What that means is exactly what we're describing. Pushing forward in faith, not building our kingdoms, but resting in his. Experiencing grace and growing in grace, responding to grace, right? And as we do that, we see his hand providing in radical and profound ways. Okay, I want to make it clear that this is an all-inclusive promise. Do you have a financial need? Yes. What should you do with it? Ask God. Well, that sounds like prosperity gospel. Tell you what, we have a God of prosperity. (laughs) What does God not own? Nothing. What could God not give? Nothing. If you have a need, ask. And the promise is here, man. God will take care of you financially. God will take care of you personally. God will take care of you in all these ways. The difference is this. Prosperity gospel, what they do is they take the promise of the gospel and they put it in that greed cycle. And they basically take the promise of the gospel and say, you can build your kingdom by the power of God. So you want that bigger, better house? Ask God and and, and give enough and then he'll be forced to give in response because God responds to generosity, Right? And it really still becomes, at the end of the day, it's still about me building my own kingdom. It's about me supplying my own needs. It's about me finding what I think I need outside of God that will ultimately meet my need for God. And God will not sanctify our sinful efforts to find our desires met outside of him. What he will do is radically free our desires from the enslavement of sin into the freedom of grace so that our deepest needs are met in him. Our deepest appetites are fed in him. God will protect you. God will provide for you. Will your life be easy? Not a chance. In fact, he ends it in verse 34 by saying this, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You guys, we live in a broken world and living in a broken world means there's going to be trouble. 
The promise here is not that we won't have trouble. The promise is that we can trust God in the midst of trouble, that he will use that for his glory and our good. When when we're about building the kingdom of God, not our own, we're not obsessed with our own comfort. We're not obsessed with our own security. We're obsessed with his glory, knowing that as God gets his glory, we get our joy. And we come to trust him with our pain. And we come to trust him with our troubles. We come to trust him with our struggles. And we know that whatever struggle God leaves in our lives, he has a purpose for in our lives. God uses our pain for his glory and our good. Because there are deep changes that need to happen in us. Ways that he wants to free us that can only come through the birth of pain. What this means is not that God will make your life perfectly easy. It does mean that he will walk with you, change you, bless you. As you live for his glory, he will meet you. Why? Because he's a God of grace. Does he ever withhold the experience of his love? Does he ever pull back the hand of his blessing? Never. But sometimes the blessing God wants to give doesn't come in the package we want to receive it in. Sometimes the blessing of God can come in the form of trouble. Does that mean that we should stop trusting God? Suddenly trust ourselves? Decide, okay, now it's time for me to solve my own problems. God doesn't have it. Is that logical? Does that make sense? No. It means we push more deeply into trust. Remember that we follow a Savior who suffered. He lived the perfect life. And yet we see him having to go through days of trouble. And as he went through his days of trouble, his solution wasn't to solve his own problems. His solution was to push deeper in faith, to go deeper into experience of the love of the Father, to sustain him through the trouble, knowing that the joy that was set before him was greater than the suffering of the present moment. You guys, there is no way to live a trouble-free life. The question is, who are you going to trust with your troubles? You're either going to pull it back and say, I have to take it. I have to take care of it. I have to build my kingdom. Or you're going to push forward in the most unnatural way. It's going to be really hard and it's going to feel really unnatural, but push forward and say, I trust God. Because he's shown me his heart and his heart is absolutely trustworthy. So when we hear the command be not anxious. What I want you to hear is an invitation. Grow in faith. God doesn't lay this command on us and then say, you better do it or I remove my hand of approval. What he says is, I give you my hand of approval. Believe it. Trust it. Rest. And push forward in faith. Because he is absolutely trustworthy. Here's the thing, as we learn to trust in God, as we learn to fight through these areas of temptation and difficulty and and weakness, as as we walk in our faith, even through the struggles, what's happening is God's reversing the flow of our heart. Uh, Do you understand that? Our heart naturally flows toward greed and self-sufficiency. He is reversing the flow of our heart. And that takes time, and that can be disruptive, and it creates turbulence, and it can be painful at times, but God is freeing us and blessing us. And we need to push by faith into the reversal of that flow because it leads to freedom and joy. You guys, I don't know what you're anxious about, but you follow the path of your anxiety and you're going to find a place for faith. Whatever it is, financial, relational, um, situational. And it's something you can trust God with. I want to be very, very clear. I know that there are times where brain chemistry can get whacked out and, and, and I know that, that people are in therapy and some people are on medication and I'm not in any way saying that's bad or wrong. Sometimes we, we need to take that because it actually helps with the brain chemistry stuff that we're dealing with. But what I'm saying helps everyone. Here's the thing. Maybe things are broken to the point that we need to, to address it from a medical perspective but we can't ever neglect from dealing, dealing with it from a spiritual perspective, which is embracing the love of God and pushing in to grow in faith in God and letting him meet us in those places of anxiety. Because here's the thing, man, when that anxiety hits you and it demands all of your attention and it produces all that fear, 
It's in that place of turmoil you say, I choose to trust God. And even better, God is trustworthy. Because you can't make yourself trust God, but you can respond to the trustworthiness of God. Fill your vision with the beauty of God. Fill your vision with the love of God poured out with you. Fill your vision with the sufficiency and the power of God. And then ask God to birth within you a responding trust that will help you free you from the anxiety that's coming. From having a heart misaligned with the flow of God. We need to hear an invitation. Because it's an invitation to freedom and to joy. And I want us to be a people who walk in this grace and push forward in this faith. A people that are marked by this kind of joy and this kind of generosity. All right, those are the principles, you guys. <laughs> those are the principles. And God's going to lead you into how to apply those principles in your life and to walk in this truth and how he's going to set you free and bless you through it, okay? One of the ways that I'm calling us corporately to do this, again, is through the sacrifice of our finances as we partner together to address the, the need in front of us, to take advantage of the opportunity God has placed in front of us, right? When, when we found out that the, the renovation of the building was going to be more expensive than we thought, my first thought, by the grace of God, wasn't, oh, no, it was all right. The Lord's going to do something beautiful in us. God's giving us a challenge because he's going to use that challenge to change us. Not just to get us into the right building, but to shape us into the right people to be in that building. And so I'm just going to ask you, push into it, man. Push into it. Pray. Ask God to lead you. How should you be involved? How should you be involved? And let God lead you and then joyfully follow. As he does, I have no doubt God is going to equip us to move forward on the mission that he's entrusted to us. So just remember, we'll be taking that special offering next Sunday, and we'll be asking you to fill out those commitment cards then after service. All right, we're going to go into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the screen, ask you to pray, um, create some space for God to do some business in your heart. Some of you over here won't see those questions. I apologize. Um, just pray. God will lead you to the right questions. Um, and uh, we're going to share communion in a moment. So let me pray for us. We're going to go into a time of, of just quiet response to God, and then we'll share communion. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are um, the God of all sufficiency. You are the God who has created all things. And in creating all things, Lord, you created us to enjoy them, to be fed by them, to be protected by them and strengthened by them. But ultimately, they're simply pointers to the, to the greater provision that we find in you that you're the God who provides, you're the God who protects, you're the God who, who ultimately um, is building a glorious kingdom. And at the end of the day, in a hundred years, man, we're going to see your glory. And we're going to recognize that your kingdom, the glory of your kingdom is eternal and worth living for, not just worth it, man, but utterly and completely satisfying in ways we never imagined. Give us a foretaste of that now. Let us move more deeply into the experience of grace, the deep contentment and thankfulness that flows in us as we become grateful, and then the movement of generosity that is the outgrowth <coughs> of simply loving. Father, glorify yourself in us. Let's take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.